On the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples before his execution, Jesus gathered his disciples around a table and he served them a meal and he spoke to them from his heart. And the words that he spoke rang in their hearts for the rest of their years and they have continued to resound through the church for all of these ages. Chapters 13 through 17 in John's Gospel capture that final conversation. And this morning, we begin a new sermon series that will walk us through that teaching. In John chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus says this, I will be with you only a little longer. That fact is what sets the context for everything else that Jesus says that night. For three years, Jesus has walked through life with his disciples, sharing every moment with them as they have traversed the land and as he has taught and, and done miracles. And now their relationship shifts. Up till this point, they've walked together, but after tonight, the disciples go forward on their own, and Jesus remains behind. Jesus has been preparing them, laying a foundation, readying them for this moment. It's like the moment when a coach sends, right before a, a coach sends his team out onto the field. Or when a general gathers together his soldiers and talks to them right before the big battle. Or when a mom says goodbye to her kid on the first day of school. This is the moment that he's been preparing them for from the beginning of his ministry. The moment when they will embark on the life that he has for them together. And embrace the, miss and embrace the mission to which he's called them as his disciples. So these are not just parting thoughts. These words are nothing less than a charter for the church during this time between his leaving at the close of his earthly ministry and his returning at the close of the age. This same period of time in which we live today. For that reason, even though these words were spoken 2,000 years ago, they speak with the same relevance as if Jesus spoke them yesterday. His message well, if you read through these five chapters, and I would actually encourage you to do that, and maybe even just print them all off, go to Bible Gateway and find a translation you like, print them all off, and just read through them at one sitting again and again, and with an underline and circle and, and draw arrows and make connections and notice more and more deeply what's there. When you do that, I think you'll see that certain themes keep resurfacing in these five chapters. This is who you are. You are a citizen of heaven. You belong to God. Here is how you are called to live. You are to live a life that testifies to the reality of heaven. A life of love, obedience, witness, and service. This is the opposition that you can expect to face. You are in this world, but you belong to another world. And this world that rejected me, you can expect it to reject you as well. Here are all the resources that I will provide for you that you can draw upon. 
You will be given gifts from on high. My love, my joy, my peace, my word, my eternal life, my presence. And this is how you can expect to experience me in the days to come, in the age of the Spirit. You will not be alone. The Spirit of God will take up residence in your hearts and he will make my presence real to you and through you to others. He will empower you to live the distinctive life to which I call you and he will equip you for your work of witness. This morning we'll be looking at chapter 13 and what Jesus says there about the sort of life to which he calls us as his people. So here's how the conversation begins. John chapter 13, verse 1. Listen to the way as we start there that Jesus weaves together in this conversation descriptions of his relationship to the disciples and descriptions of the life to which he calls them, which we'll discover are directly connected to each other. John 13, verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Verse 12, and when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. And that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Jesus describes his relationship with the disciples using three different complementary word pairs. Did you happen to notice those ways that he describes his connection with them? Just walk through those. The first word pair is teacher and student. Verse 13, you call me teacher and rightly so, for that is what I am. The teacher-student relationship feels so familiar to us. Most of us feel like we've spent half of our lives going to school. We know exactly what this relationship is like. I think of when I was a business major at Miami University, and one teacher after another with whom I had no interaction outside of the classroom would stand up in front of the class and lecture us, and we would fill notebook after notebook with information that he or she imparted to us. And then when the test came, we did our best to pour back out on the test the information that we had crammed into our heads in the hope that we retained enough of the information to get a decent grade. But that is hardly anything like the relationship between a teacher and a student in the ancient Near East. In biblical times, the relationship between a teacher and a student was an intimate one. The students didn't just attend a teacher's class. 
They lived life with the teacher, spending time together, sharing meals together, even living together under the same roof. And students didn't just acquire information from the teacher, they sought to pattern their lives after the lives of their teacher. You should be able to listen to the disciple and hear the speech patterns and cadence of the teacher. You should be able to look at the, the behavior of a disciple and see the actions of the teacher in front of you. One life translated into the life of another. These aren't students. They are followers. You call me teacher, and rightly so. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. A student imitates. The second word pair is master and servant. Verse 13, no servant, the word here actually means slave. No slave is greater than his master. The master-slave relationship is not a relationship that is familiar to any of us in the modern world. Especially here in the United States, where we so prize our freedoms, this can be a really hard one for us to identify with. The way we relate to authority in the U.S. is with our will very much intact. Tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. As long as you explain it to me first, to my satisfaction, and I understand it, and, and then agree with it, and agree with the rationale that's behind it, and then as long as I have the availability and the inclination to actually do the thing that you are asking me to do, you bet, I'll do it. But the relationship of a slave to a master is completely different. The slave belongs to the master. So when a master issues a command, the slave does not have the prerogative to disagree or disobey. The slave's responsibility is to line up his or her will with the will of the master. With an, when an order is given, there is no weighing, there is only obeying. No slave, Jesus says, is greater than his master. A slave obeys. The third word pair is Lord and messenger. Verse 16, you call me Lord, and rightly so. Actually, that's verse 13. And then verse 16, no messenger is greater than the one who sent him. One summer during college, I worked at Columbia Gas in Columbus, Ohio. And my job was to drive the mail route back and forth between the offices, uh, between the, the Dublin Road office and the Goodale Boulevard office. When I delivered the mail, I would walk in and plunk the mail bag on the counter and say, good ale mail. Well, as you might imagine, I got bored with that the very first day. So I began to use my drive time to compose rhymes in my head <laughs> with which I would announce the arrival of the good ale mail when I walked in with these people that I did not know. Hail, male and female, lift up an ale, you need not bewail. This hail, male, will never fail to wend the trail across hill and dale and bring the bag of good ale mail. <laughs> and they would look at me, wondering what planet I came from. <laughs> but I didn't know who wrote the messages that I delivered. And I didn't know the people who received them. 
I didn't know what the messages said. I just carried a canvas bag and plunked it on the counter and picked up another identical bag and walked out of the building with it and put it in the truck and went back the other direction. But this word pair, too, is loaded with cultural meaning. This word translated messenger is the word apostle. In the ancient world, an apostle was someone who was given a commission by a person in supreme authority, a king, a lord. And messengers did not just deliver a message. They represented the official as that official's ambassador, standing in his place, acting on his behalf, representing him in that moment. You call me Lord, and rightly so. No one who is sent is greater than the one who sends him. A messenger represents. So just let those word pairs sink in. This is where Jesus begins his last conversation with the disciples, by reminding them of the incredible breadth of his authority over their lives. He says, in essence, if I am your teacher, your life will resemble mine. If I am your master, your will will conform to mine. And if I am your ruler, your mission will mirror mine. Listen to those again. If I am your teacher, your life will resemble mine. Who or what sets the pattern of your life more than anything else? To who or what does the arrow of your life point? If I am your master, your will will conform to mine. Who or what rules over you? Sorry, that's the wrong one. Who or what has the last word in your life? And to who or what do you give an unqualified yes every time they make a request? And if I'm your ruler, your mission will mirror mine. So who or what rules over you? And what is the cause to which you have devoted your life? I am your teacher, you are my follower. I am your master, you are my slaves. I am your ruler, you are my ambassadors. That said, flip down to verse 34, which I think we'll hear in a whole new way. A new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Don't you hear those words with a whole new power and urgency when you hear them against the backdrop of how Jesus began this conversation with his disciples? Let's just walk through them. A new command I give you, Jesus says, love one another. A new command. Well, in a sense, this isn't really new. Love for God and neighbor have been clearly and repeatedly communicated by Jesus as the highest and most comprehensive commands in the Christian life. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Christian life is a life of love. Jesus has made that clear. But now that he's about to send them off on their own, apart from him, now the real Christian life begins. 
So I give you a new command, he says, in my absence, let love be ever present. Live a life of love. The command comes this first time with the commanding weight of authority. A command I give you, Jesus says. This is not a request that I want to run past you. This isn't a suggestion I want to make to you. This isn't an idea that I want to bounce off of you. This is a command that I am issuing to you as your teacher, your master, and your Lord. Love one another. The word for love is one of several in the Greek, as you may be aware. And this specifically is the one that is most closely associated with the Christian faith. And that's because whenever it is used, it always implies sacrifice. Putting the other person first, even when it is costly for me to do so. Love one another. Literally, it says, each one love each other one. Not just the one who stands in front of you. Not just the one that you have sought out. Not just the one that you are getting along with. But all those that God places around you. Each one love each other one. As I have loved you, he says, you must love one another. The command of love is repeated a second time. And this time it comes with a compelling weight of immediacy based on their own experience of how Jesus has dealt with them. As I have loved you, what Jesus calls them to is not unfamiliar. They've been on the receiving end of this costly sacrificial love every day for the past three years as they have followed Jesus. And not only that, but his very incarnation was an expression of profoundly sacrificial love. By squeezing his divine nature into human flesh and, and laying down his heavenly glory for 30 years, he has been taking up the towel and serving those that he loves. And the very next day, as he has told the disciples, the very next day, in love, Jesus will allow himself to be whipped and nailed to a cross and left to die for our sakes. As Jesus says at the start of this conversation in chapter 13, verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he now loves them to the end. In two chapters, John chapter 15, Jesus will say, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. The New Testament echoes this same theme again and again and again. Love drives Jesus to sacrifice on our behalf. Ephesians 5.25, one of many examples, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As I have loved you, in the same self-sacrificial way, to the same costly depth that I loved you, so you must love one another. And then the third line, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. He repeats the command a third time, and this time the command comes with the convicting weight of urgency. Making disciples is the call of everyone who is a disciple, without exception. What is the single greatest evangelistic tool that we have? 
our love. Or to be more precise, his love pouring through us. What will have the greatest effect in persuading non-Christians of the truth of the gospel? Our love. What will be the most compelling part of our defense of the Christian faith? Our love. And what will make it clear to the world that we belong to this Jesus? Our love. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. No one should have to wonder. It will be clear to everyone who looks in on your life. Ah, I know who you belong to. I know who you've given your allegiance to. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, if your lives are marked by the very same love that marked your teacher, your master, and your Lord. Well, the disciples and the early church took this threefold command to love very seriously. In his book, The Rise of Christianity, historian Rodney Stark describes the growth of the church in its earliest years, and he points to what he believes was the decisive factor in the acceptance of the Christian message when it was still a small minority voice in a culture that largely wanted to discredit the church. It was their love that did it. Tertullian, a Christian writer in North Africa, captured what the ancient world experienced when they bumped into this small band of Christian believers. He wrote, it is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. What if that was what our neighbor said about us? What if it was our loving kindness that branded us in the eyes of those who viewed us from outside the faith? Love is the quality that sets the Christian faith apart. It is the single most distinctive quality because it is the quality that most sets Jesus apart from all others who claim to have any kind of spiritual authority. Think about what Jesus is getting here at here. Love is the thing that will connect our lives most meaningfully to the life of Jesus. You can go to Topkapi Palace in Istanbul in Turkey, and you can see eight of Muhammad's swords. His was a life of forceful conquest. He personally led eight battles and and 18 raids. So when you interact with his followers, you might expect to encounter something of the same stern militancy that marked him in them. You can go to Bihar, India, and you can sit under, under a descendant of the Bodhi tree under which the Buddha sat. His was a life of, of abnegation, of disengagement with the world, a life of relinquishment, of denying needs and, and desires and claims. And when you encounter one of his followers, you're not surprised to see ragged, threadbare robes and begging bowls and lives of detached self-denial and disengagement from the world. And you can go to Jerusalem in Israel and see the hill where a cross was erected. 
cross to which Jesus allowed himself to be nailed in an act of sacrificial love. As he gave his life in exchange for ours. When you encounter his followers, what you rightly expect to encounter most in them is that same quality of self-sacrificial love. When that is absent, it's confusing. Mahatma Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are unlike your Christ. But when it is present, it is compelling. Gandhi went on to say, if all Christians acted like Christ, the whole world would be Christians. We are meant to be living interpretations of the Christian faith. We are meant to be living embodiments, representations of the head of the Christian faith. That's why Anne Rice, after her conversion to Christianity, said, we have to become like Christ. Anything less is simply not enough. Hans Urs von Balthasar, in his book, Engagement with God, says that Christianity is unique among all world religions and philosophies in its call for its followers to love their fellow human beings. He says, nowhere else will we find that kind of respect for the person of one's neighbor. And then he says this, because the most significant thing in life that can happen to our neighbor is his being laid claim to and taken seriously as a person. An event that leaves on him the most lasting impression. A state that constitutes for him the source of the greatest happiness that he can know on earth. In this, above all, lies the credibility of the church and the success of the mission of Christianity. It ought, therefore, to be possible to recognize the Christian by the fact that he opens up the very depths of his heart to his fellow human beings and to God, demonstrating to them that his own heart has already had its secret places plundered and indwelt. This, he says, is the living proof of the reality of the Holy Trinity. Our love, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. Sometimes people tell me that illustrations taken from my own life don't really count because it's not really an illustration from a real person who's living a real life kind of out there in the world. Well, the truth is when it comes to loving my neighbor, I really don't know what I'm doing. Sharon and I are just making it up as we go along. I've shared with you the stuff that we are trying to do just as as you are trying to do stuff as well. A neighborhood directory, a neighborhood gathering on our front lawn, cookies on people's door at Christmas, contests when the Super Bowl comes around, asking for donations for the Afghanistan families that our church is helping to welcome, stopping and chatting on my way in and out of the neighborhood, trying to be there when a neighbor has a need, stuff like that. We're really just making it up as we go along. And sometimes we can wonder if it's really making much of a difference. So this this illustration falls in the category of small things are not small things when it comes to showing the love of God. 
This is so moving to me. A couple of weeks ago, Sharon and I got uh, an email from one of our neighbors. And I really don't know this neighbor. This is somebody probably I've had the least interaction with in our whole street. And, and I don't know that if he was here this morning, I would even recognize him. But this is what he wrote. Hey, David, I'm not much of a participant in group activities. This is in response to a Super Bowl contest. But I wanted to thank you for the nice gift of the cookies. My family all enjoyed them. No matter our backgrounds or affiliations, these are days when we need lots of reminders of how much we have in common as human beings and how our essential needs are the same. Choosing to be in this world but not of this world isn't as easy as it used to be for many of us. But I believe strongly that the way through any of our struggles is transparency, empathy, acceptance, and service. I, of course, fail at this every day, but that is the nature of being human. For this long-standing agnostic, raised Roman Catholic, that is what I believe is the essence of leading a Christ-like life. And I believe your efforts in the neighborhood are a good example of that kind of work. Wow, I was flattened. Don't you wonder? Does this make any difference? What a testimony that it does. Even the smallest, most bumbling ways that we seek to show love to the people God places around us. Before he said goodbye, as he lined us up, getting ready to send us out, Jesus gave a simple command. Live a life of love. Love because I did. Love like I did. Love in a way that points to what I did. Love. Two years ago, just before COVID hit, we shared with you that we believe that God is calling us to become a church known more for its love than for anything else. I believe that more strongly now than I've ever believed that. By that, I do not mean that we are softening our stance on biblical truth or any of the other convictions that define us. Not at all. And when people become part of the covenant family, they will quickly learn that we are unapologetically a Christ-centered, biblically grounded church committed to advancing the gospel. But out there in the world where people are making quick judgments on the basis of the way we interact with them as they sit next to us in the arena or stand next to us in line or, or wait on our tables or live next door to us or watch the way that we respond to a person in need. That's where we want to be known more for our love than for anything else. And we are. I hear tales. As I go through the community, this community is talking about you. Out in the community, I hear our growing reputation. When people come into our midst, I hear their reports of their encounters with you. We really are becoming a church known more for its love than for anything else. There are so many examples that came to mind of people who are actively, intentionally living out lives of love with their neighbors. Here are just the names of a few, and I know many of you, many others of you whose names I won't mention, are seeking to do this as well. Martha Riley, Marion Virging, Frankie Kung, Sharon Baker, Bob and Diane Shockey, Bob and Patty Truitt, Javin and A. Greeson, Steve and Joyce Rose, Neil and Aaron Rutan, Jess and Donna Vandergraaf, Philip and Radana Fiorini, Wes and Naomi Cook, Glenn and Margot Balsas. I mean, the list goes on and on. 
We are learning to love. So these are the words of our teacher, our master, and our ruler to his followers 2,000 years ago and this morning. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. I want to invite our worship team to come up. That is God's word to you, to us this morning. What is your yes to him?